0: Produced in association with KPMG Australia, this is What Happens Next with Whitney Fitzsimmons.
1: Hello, I'm Whitney Fitzsimmons. Coming up on the program, we discuss the S in ESG. I do think the
2: S is this forgotten middle child of the ESG acronym. And when we talk about environmental social governance, really centering on social is a question about people.
1: We talk to one entrepreneur who's building trust in AI.
0: Machine learning can be used for so much more than surveillance or um, extracting personal data.
1: And we find out how companies are embedding sustainability in their strategy.
0: A net positive company is one that
3: profits and grows and creates value by solving the world's problems, not creating them, and, and by creating well-being.
1: That's all coming up when we discover What happens next? When it comes to ESG, we often hear about the E or the environmental aspects. But what about the S? Often it can be challenging for business to really focus on how to strategically bring this to life. To discuss this in more detail, I spoke earlier to Dr. Meg Brody, partner, KPMG Banara. Dr. Meg Brody, welcome to the program. Thank you, Whitney. Now, ESG has been a hot topic for business recently. Obviously, the E gets a lot of attention, but let's talk about the S. What's the main focus here of your work?
2: That's such a great question, Whitney, because I do think the S is this forgotten middle child of the ESG acronym. And when we talk about environmental social governance, really centering on social is a question about people. How are people impacted by the decisions that you make and how are people impacted by what you positively lean into as well as the risks that you deal with? So when I talk about the SNESG, I encourage people to put the risk of harm to people at the centre of that question, um, or alternatively say, how can we create better, more positive outcomes and
1: opportunities for people? Can you just give me some examples of what you focus on?
2: Look, I think part of this conversation in Australia has been really helpfully pushed along by the introduction of the Modern Slavery Act. Australia, a couple of years ago, introduced a piece of legislation that requires business to report on an annual basis about the risks of modern slavery in their operations and supply chain and to describe the actions that they're taking to to respond to those risks. And what we really see here in this modern slavery space is an S issue that everyone can agree on. So it's pretty hard <laughs> to make a business case for egregious human rights violations like slavery. But Fundamentally, human rights and modern slavery are not the same thing. There are many who've been working on those broader issues for for many years. For example, the way that uh, a mining development impacts on a community. Mm -hmm. And in those moments, you're asking these much deeper questions then around seeking to understand the social impacts of um, setting up um, or all the way through to decommissioning a mine mm-hmm. and engaging with um, local Indigenous stakeholders and other affected communities to understand how can we do this in a way where people are both included in the decision-making and we're understanding the impacts on them. So there's a couple of couple of examples of, of how that can live in practice. Mm-hmm.
1: And that really is about having a 360-degree view of the issue of, of whatever you're trying to achieve as a business, not looking at it purely through the lens of business, but looking at it holistically, isn't it?
2: Oh, yeah, fundamentally, Whitney. So it is really about identifying and understanding what diverse stakeholders think. How do we seek to um, put people at the centre of our decision-making? The first question is to to ask them, to seek to mm. understand what your stakeholders are
1: experiencing. I would imagine part of your work would be helping your clients to understand that while the feedback may not be something that they want to hear, it is actually ultimately helping them long term in terms of reputational risk and those sorts of things.
2: Yeah, look, I think sometimes, um, you know, this obviously can be a, a bit of shoot the messenger, but sometimes mm-hmm. there's um, those really important moments where there's a desire to other the problem. I call it the bad apple syndrome. And it's mm-hmm. the when, when um, something pretty cataclysmic has come to the fore, a really sick, significant human rights violation, there can be a rejection of the idea that that's something that applies across the business. Oh, surely it's just that that one individual who did something mm-hmm. wrong, mm-hmm. Um, or we've, we've got some bad actors that we need to deal with, rather than stepping back and looking at, at the problem more systemically. And I think Uh that that's that difference between something that's reactionary, responding to the handful of of bad actors, versus saying, well, what allowed that practice or series of practices to happen in the first place? What are the more transformative steps that we need to take um, to understand and respond to the issue? What's our strategic and systemic response gonna be to the problems that we're facing?
1: And also make sure that those changes or transitions stick, right? Mm. Yeah, fundamentally.
2: And look, I think that we do see um, that distinction between wanting to sort of outsource some of these problems and going, I'll sort it all out for us.
1: But the harder work is embedding it. What are the signs that businesses need to keep in mind when they're embarking on these sorts of programs or, mm. or looking to kind of embrace the s as it were?
2: You need data. So mm-hmm. fundamentally, you have to be asking questions so that you've got information to work with. And I think one of the challenges in the S space is we don't have the same universal data that perhaps other pockets of um, of environmental or climate change considerations can now draw on and rely on. And mm-hmm. That's part of seeing the risk of harm to people as a dynamic risk and being prepared to ask questions. What data gives you then is the opportunity to look for flags. And that understanding of vulnerability is a really important signal that lets you pick things up ahead of time to ask questions about, well, is this really an ethical approach? Is this really something that we want to pursue because you've considered Mm. vulnerability?
1: When you gather that data, how do companies, businesses put safeguards in place to abrogate or make sure that those unethical approaches no longer exist? So I I think the responses are manifold. You
2: probably need to deal with this in two key ways. So the first is what I call the hygiene response, which is that you have a certain standard right across your business that will be about um, setting your risk appetite and tolerances, being really clear about what your responses are with respect to higher risk suppliers, and then making sure that you have a way of continuously monitoring or checking. The second thing is you can't be everywhere And one of the things I think that's helpful to reflect on in this space is to actually go back to the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. There is an understanding baked in that organisations will deal with risks where there's the most harm to people, so that severity question, and also where they've got the ability to do something about it, and that is that question of what impact do you want to have? You know, that that age-old question, what do you want to be famous for? You can apply that to this space as well. Where is it that you organisationally want to make change? How is that aligned with your purpose and values? Um, and then you play that out alongside your risk response as well.
1: Are there any positive examples of businesses operating well within the S yes space? Yeah, there are. There are. There are
2: lots of examples, and I think fundamentally, what we're seeing in terms of those emerging um, leading practice responses are beyond compliance and saying, okay, beyond our due diligence. Uh, These are the things that we're going to do to uplift the communities in which we work, to fundamentally make a change, to lend our voice to to advocacy for a broader change across business as a whole. And those leading actors are are requesting more regulation in this space. They're engaging um, in multi-stakeholder initiatives with government and civil society organisations to bring those diverse voices to the table of change. So that's absolutely what we're seeing in terms of leading leading business in this space.
1: Dr Meg Brody, thank you for joining the program. Thank you so much. Our next guest has built his company Unleash Live around embedding trust in AI and the notion that it doesn't use personal information to manipulate or surveil the public. To find out more, I caught up with Hanno Blankenstein, a co-founder and CEO of Unleash Live. Hanno Blankenstein, welcome to the program.
0: Hi, Whitney. Great to be on your show.
1: So tell me about your company, Unleash Live. What do you do?
0: We are a visual analytics company working with large-scale infrastructure clients on inspections and maintenance processes. So essentially, we take visual data and then we process that with uh, machine learning algorithms and provide insights into asset conditions.
1: So what type of clients do you have and what do you help them with?
0: Most of our clients have vast amounts of infrastructure assets. So think about um, wind farms, solar farms, mining companies, oil and gas companies and transportation companies. So anyone that owns and operates expensive infrastructure that runs for 10 years, 50 years, sometimes 100 years and um, Uh, needs paying a lot of attention to maintaining that infrastructure to keep it safe and operating um, well.
1: One of the founding principles of your company was for AI to be ethical. Why was that important to you?
0: One of the things that I learned while uh, working on exciting projects in the autonomous vehicle um, segment was that machine learning can be used for so much more than surveillance or um, extracting personal data. Mm -hmm. And Unleash Live was exactly founded to address the perception of AI being exclusively used for data sets that extract personal data. I strongly believe that computer vision and machine learning algorithms provide so much value in sectors outside of surveillance, so inspecting assets making sure that um, we don't run into things to be safe. And all of those topics are topics that Unleash Live addresses.
1: Do you find, though, that it's actually quite difficult to communicate that positive message because AI and um, machine learning can have a bit of a, a negative reputation because of some of the issues it's
0: created? Absolutely, Whitney. I think as with any technology, there's always a positive side and a dark side. Mm. And when the internet first appeared or when the mobile phone first appeared, people were naturally scared and rightly so. Uh, So um, this is where we need to actively help and educate, but also set standards and be thought leaders to make sure that the technology is being used for positive augmentation of uh, humankind.
1: So you started the company in 2016. Could you see a gap in the market then to prioritise ethical AI?
0: Yes, we did. And our traction and growth has validated that this was exactly the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. So back in the early days of machine learning the term artificial intelligence was very much used for surveillance uh, on security cameras, facial recognition, comparing data sets and uh, tying it back to individuals. But there is no one really taking it beyond that market. Many of the innovation and uh, companies were n- not necessarily ethical, right? So. I would like to work with a company that shares my values mm-hmm. and that has not always been the case with the startups in the early days of AI.
1: What are some of the biggest hurdles that it needs to overcome to become accepted, that the, the people will put their trust in?
0: When you think about what builds trust, there are many facets to it. One is clearly that my privacy is protected. Mm, um, mm-hmm. A second area though is also security, It's plain old security that my data is secure and cannot be hacked or, or um, misused or um, extracted um, without me uh, consenting to it. Um, another area is uh, bias, so ethical AI contains pretty much all three of those elements and actions um, are much more important than what you say so some of the actions that we put in place is how do we um, ensure security security of the data how do we actually measure quality of the machine learning algorithms which we deploy with our um, clients so that we address the notion of bias what actions do we take to anonymize the data and all of those three topics require a lot of technology tooling, but it's also um, a lot of frameworks and processes within our organization and together with our clients to ensure that we actually take the appropriate action.
1: And your AI doesn't actually involve the use of personal information, so a government could never identify people or use it for its surveillance. Is that a selling point for your business?
0: That's exactly right, Whitney. So um, even though uh, some of our um, branding and the way we differentiate in the market is to showcase the power of AI, um, when it comes down to how we operate and the value that we deliver, it's all about improving asset productivity, which does not involve humans and their personal behavior or their personal identity um so yes it is a selling point and that that is one of the cornerstones of how we overcome the trust issue as well
1: and i would imagine then the staff that you attract would be attracted to that specific point as well how do you think they'd respond if you ever moved away from that kind of
0: practice as a small company and as a founder of a fast growing business i am very clear in in the way we th- present our values and the way we live our values, um, that ethical AI is central to our mission. So it is a big selling point, not only with our clients, but also the way we attract talent. And you're right, um, in every interview and every um, onboarding session, these questions are being asked. And as soon as we build the trust, um, it is an exciting moment because This is actually really different. And um, we provide something that none of the other competitors are, are doing in the market at the moment. AI is so much more than collecting personal identifiable data at scale.
1: Hannah Blankenstein, thank you for joining the program.
0: Thank you, Whitney. Pleasure to be with you.
1: Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take, asks the critical question, is the world better off with your company in it? To discuss this in detail, I spoke to the book's co-author, Andrew Winston. Andrew Winston, welcome to the program.
3: Thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
1: So, Andrew, what people expect from corporations has changed dramatically over the last few years. What has driven this rapid shift away from profit at all costs?
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure everybody's completely pivoted from, from profits yeah. first, but but certainly there's a lot more credence to thinking more broadly about what does drive profit or how you succeed as a business. And um, there's a very large array of voices saying, hey, you know, companies really should be thinking about more than shareholders and and saying that they are thinking about more than shareholders. And that's coming from... CEOs and investors and you know it's not just coming from pressure groups and things, but you know, the the acceleration of this, you know, what people are calling ESG now, environmental, social, and governance. I think it's a lot of things. I think that you know the pandemic helped accelerate, but there were things in the works already. But it's really, you know, these kind of really big fundamental trends and changes in the world that have been building for years that I've spent a lot of my time kind of working on and, and writing about and talking to people. Climate change you know, in the last few years, I think, has become much clearer to people that it's not a model we're debating. It's actually happening, right? In in Australia, in California, you know, the, the scale of fires, the scale of storms, droughts, floods, it's just bigger than we've ever seen. And so people are kind of seeing it and, and there's real costs to business. And, you know, the pressure from kind of generational you know views of younger people who want companies to stand for something has been building and the, and the kind of rise of interest in investors so it's just kind of all come together and i think really now all the all companies all really big companies are at the table there's no one really denying that this is on the agenda and they have to be talking about these environmental and social issues you know, the real question now is how fast we go and who who does it well.
1: Do you think it's possible that any business could sit on the sidelines now and not look at human rights, climate change, and equity and inclusion?
3: I, look, I'm sure some will. And, and you know, there's always that people will come up and say, oh, but there's still people making money off of being bad. There's still Exxon or whatever. It's, it, you know, those cases don't disprove the rule. There's going to be companies making money in traditional ways, uh, you know, for some amount of time, right? But I think... You know, the oil and gas companies will be selling oil and gas for a number of years, and you know they're going to be riding high right now with, with the war and the price of oil and gas. But over time, they're being eliminated, right? They're being mm. turned into dinosaurs, and that's unavoidable. So I, I think there there's no sidelines anymore for having a stance on the kind of big issues of the day. You know, even Exxon and those guys, they still take a position. You know, their position is the world needs energy and the developing world needs energy and we're providing it. And those, you know, those awful renewables won't really won't really power the world. So they have a position. Right. So nobody's staying silent. It's it's just, you know, there's gonna be vested interests that are fighting, but the rest of the world is moving pretty quickly to kind of a, a new form of operations in many sectors, right? I think we're gonna see drastic changes in transportation and buildings and finance. It's all moving pretty quickly and and a lot of it exponentially, and, and we're not used to that. People are not used to the pace of change.
1: Yeah, and the way we view accountability has evolved. Corporations, they're still answerable to investors, but there are a range of other stakeholders in the mix. What, what sort of power do you think employees hold now?
3: I think they're the most important one. And and just but to step back for a second, that it's not shareholders versus stakeholders. I think that's been a kind of big myth you know in my work and in my my latest book we we talk about satisfying stakeholders you know pleasing your customers you know engaging your employees and on and on and that results in good share shareholder value it's not against each other and what you're hearing from some of the biggest investors like Larry Fink at BlackRock I mean he's the he's technically the largest investor in the world largest mass you know asset manager BlackRock has 10 trillion he's been writing lots of things about this saying this isn't this isn't some kind of woke Agenda, this is capitalism, but but, you know, serving your stakeholders is how you make money. It's how you create value So the employees are are critical and they're really driving change You're not going to be able to attract and retain talent if you're not Making a statement and backing it up and you know Really having a position on these issues and showing that you're moving in the right direction and showing that you have values Right that you have beliefs and purpose. That's what the younger generation is demanding um, and they're changing how business is done
1: you mentioned your book it's a roadmap for how businesses can become a net positive company what does that actually mean
3: so just to remind everyone or tell everyone who my co-author is so I, I wrote with Paul Pullman who was the CEO of Unilever for 10 years and really I think the most respected you know large company CEO on on this agenda of, of building environmental and social thought and issues into your into your strategies he really dug in at Unilever and made it the core of the business. And we you know our our kind of mission in a way is to convince companies that we have to go much faster, we need speed and scale and that it's really not enough anymore to just incrementally improve, you know, reduce your emissions a little bit here and there, that we need a kind of wholesale systemic change. And so a, a net positive company we're we're defining is one that profits and grows and this is how it creates value by solving the world's problems, not creating them and and by creating well-being for all the stakeholders that they they touch, employees and consumers, suppliers, customers, communities, and on and on. and doing that through everything they do, you know, through their products and services, their operations, their buildings. And this is, you know, it's a North Star. Nobody could claim that they're there yet. Um, so it's a path, right? And it's but we have to set a different, more aggressive agenda, and if the reports coming out of the scientific community on climate in particular, you know, if you take a look at them at all, you realize we're, we're really out of time and, and business is gonna have to pivot pretty fast. And I think we can, you know, the, the pandemic showed how quickly we could move if you needed to, right? Entire supply chains mm. got shifted. People worked at home all of a sudden, right? Like, stuff we thought was gonna take years, we figured it out. And I think we have to start treating climate as that kind of emergency um, because we're really running out of time.
1: There's been a school of thought that prioritizing ESG will negatively impact the bottom line. It seems to me that 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 is really just a myth. Is that your view on that?
3: Well, this is kind of what I've been doing for 20 years. And I I am not exaggerating when I say that I do a lot of media, I do a lot of speaking, I write. I get Mm. a question about, you know, hey, doesn't ESG or doesn't sustainability hurt the bottom line. I get that question pretty much daily for like 20 years mm-hmm. now. <laughs>
1: Has the answer ever changed? Um,
3: it's, it's changed somewhat. I mean, I used to, my first book was called Green to Gold and it was a very unsubtle title. It was about using green and environmental thinking to drive profit. Yeah. And it was, you know, just kind of in a way, a simple story to say, hey, you know, you can cut energy use, cut waste, that saves money, you can reduce your risk, you can kind of innovate around environmental needs and sustainability needs for customers. And all of those things have become even more true. Like there's real customer demand now, like serious customer pull through. I'm hearing that from so many sectors. So the, the value creation opportunities are huge. There's, there's kind of a problem with, if it's called sustainability, it's somehow assumed to be anti-business. And it's called a cost instead of an investment, whatever you spend. There's nothing else in business that's treated that way. Everything is a cost. Everything is a capital allocation choice. You're going to hire people, you're going to invest in them, you're going to do R&D, you're going to spend on marketing. And in no other r- realm are you supposed to prove that it pays off immediately, right? There's always some mm, sense of mm. a hurdle rate or we're investing in marketing because we just think it's, you know, we got to build the brand. I, I, I wrote about this years ago and said, you know, tell me, what's the, what's the return on investment on a Super Bowl ad? like you do some giant ad campaign, no one can tell you the ROI, right? And hmm. and when it comes to this stuff, it's always just been assumed that it's some kind of anti-business, you know, liberal plot to take over business instead of seeing it as this, you know, real pathway to value creation. So I think the answer has only changed in that it's gotten more and more obvious that this is a better path. Like, t- doing things like, say, using renewable energy, it was a a choice, you know, 10 years ago, do we want to do this for brand reasons? Is this going to help us, you know, in in kind of uh, achieving some form of energy resilience? I mean, what were the other benefits? Now it's just cheaper, you know, and ESG funds until recently, I mean, oil prices kind of change everything. But until recently, the last few years, they've been outperforming, Mm -hmm. you know, 80% of ESG funds outperformed their benchmarks in 2020. So and people will still ask me, "Well, how can I move money into ESG since it loses money?" I'm like, "But they outperform." So I don't know how to answer the question, right? <laughs> so it's it's been a strange a strange discussion. And then just to put it in a, in a bigger picture, just kind of an existential level, we're we're being asked in a way to keep proving the business case for our survival. Like I don't I don't understand honestly the conversation we're having anymore because this isn't like some game. I mean, the you know climate change is going to make huge parts of the world uninhabitable kind of giant numbers of refugees it can destabilize the whole planet so yeah it's worth investing in you know like it's just it's become kind of kind of silly um because the cost of doing nothing is now radically higher than the cost of doing something and there's still this myth that and you hear it from politicians if we tackle climate change it'll destroy the economy well, no, that's mm. not that's not what's happening.
1: Do you think that that is just groups of people who are still afraid of change, yeah. which is a, a natural human condition? You know, a lot of people are afraid of change.
3: Well, of course. I mean, look, that's what's driving so much of our problems right now. I mean, it ties to nationalism, racism. It's always about change, right? There's a changing mm. demographics in the U.S., for example. Yeah. You know, we're getting younger, we're getting more diverse, and it's freaking some people out. Mm. And, and it's causing tremendous Damage. Look, there's, there's actual vested interests, right? There's the big oil and gas companies that want to yeah. slow yeah. this down. They want to dig up all the oil and gas they can. And there's a little bit of, well, I've known how to make money investing in fossil fuels. I don't know necessarily how to make money investing in wind, you know, or a wind uh, manufacturer or something. So they kind of go with what they know. And I think if, you know, behavioral economics has taught us anything as it's grown as a discipline in the last 20 years, it's taught us that we don't make we don't make decisions just on numbers. That's the big myth, really, right? That we're we're perfectly analyzing our choices as individuals or as executives, and choosing the perfectly profitable one. No, I and mean, there's all sorts of emotions and biases involved, right? And people have a strong feeling about the way things are done currently, and they they kind of stick with it. But yeah, there are look there are losses, right? the, the coal industry is going away; those are lost jobs we need to figure out kind of a, what's called a just transition, right? Help people as we move away. But I will point out that there has been, you know, what's been called creative destruction and capitalism forever. And we pretty much never help people. The number of jobs lost in retail just from the mm. rise of Amazon in the last five, mm. 10 years has been millions. And nobody's gone, that's a way of life, the way they talk about coal, you know, or oil and gas. There's a bunch of people with skills that don't apply anymore. But this happens all the time. And it's, you know, it's a question of how do we, how do we help people? I don't think people have quite gotten a handle on how much better the world will be when it's powered by clean energy, clean vehicles, just so much less asthma and health problems and just much less damage to the world. You know, we needed those technologies. They got us to modern times. But now we have better. And that's, that's good news.
1: Andrew Winston, thanks for joining the program.
3: Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: All right, well, that's all for the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the program. Until next time, thank you for listening to What Happens Next.
0: You've been listening to What Happens Next with Whitney Fitzsimmons. Produced in association with KPMG Australia. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts.